Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Russell. Hi, everyone. This is Ben. Today on the show, we have Lisa Ballard. And just for our listeners, Lisa actually just got married. She used to be known as Lisa Densmore. So thank you so much for coming on the show and congratulations on the wedding. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting, although I am in the midst of name confusion. (laughs) (laughs) Spending your honeymoon with us, too. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, uh, Lisa is a writer, photographer, television producer and host, filmmaker, coach, product consultant, and professional skier. A former member of the U.S. ski team, she was just named 2014 U.S. Alpine Masters Skier of the Year for the fifth time. She is a spokesperson for Elan Skis, which sponsors her Your Turn Women's Ski Events, a national program that has helped over 6,000 women ski better over the last 20 years. Lisa, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Russell, you know, the good news is that Lisa is an expert in all things skiing. And, you know, I think we're going to have a good conversation today. But the bad news for us, Lisa, is that you're also an Emmy award-winning producer. And Russell and I happen to be in the production business. So take it easy on us. I'll be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> so like Russell was saying, you wear, you wear a lot of hats. And I'm a little overwhelmed. So let's first talk about the, the first hat that you put on. So when did you say, you know, the outdoors are more than a hobby? I'm going to make this my life. Well, it was never a conscious decision. It just evolved that way. When I graduated from college, I actually thought I was going to be a banker on Wall Street and move to New York City. So (laughs) it couldn't be farther from what I'm doing today. But I think as many people just sort of follow the paths that open up before them, and I, you know, to quote the famous poem by Robert Frost, or to paraphrase it, I, I took the the path less traveled, I think, and that's made all the difference. For me, I just followed my heart. I love the outdoors. I love to be in the mountains. I, I think there's a piece of me that needs to be on the, on a mountain. And I just was able to keep staying there and finding ways to make a living and expanding on that and networking and meeting more people. And here I am today. I'm still doing it. So you went to Dartmouth College, which is a really good school, and studied finance, probably learned a ton. But Dartmouth is around all these mountains, and it actually has their own ski area, which is pretty unusual for a college. Was that something that influenced you to make skiing more than a hobby? Well, I I certainly went to Dartmouth because of skiing. I I was on the U.S. ski team and and was recruited to ski for Dartmouth. It was my first choice, too. I think I wanted to go to school there since I was in eighth grade, in part because they had their own ski area, and I just thought that was a very cool thing. However, Ironically, when I got to Dartmouth, I never skied at the Dartmouth Skiway because this is back in the early 80s before they had snowmaking and there were some tough snow winters then or lack of snow, I should say. And we basically trained at Killington and at Stowe and uh, I didn't actually ski at the Dartmouth Skiway until much later after I graduated. But certainly skiing was the draw and being in the mountains was a draw and 
part of being at Dartmouth and being in the outing club, it gave me the opportunity to hike and ski many, many peaks in New Hampshire, some on chairlifts and some backcountry. So when you finally decided, I don't think that Wall Street is for me, were you pursuing racing after that? Well, this is one of those fortuitous things that happened. I was a little bit disgruntled with banking in New York City. And by coincidence, in March that year, while I was in the training program, a friend of mine, Kim Reichelm, invited me to spend a weekend at Okimo, Vermont, basically to watch her and hang out with her while she was racing on a women's pro tour race. And of course, she talked me into entering the race after I hadn't skied a day all winter. And I I didn't do that great, but I did qualify for the first round of money, which was the round of 16. And basically fell in love with ski racing again after having quit, you know, after college. So, yeah, and I basically went back to New York and resigned from the bank. And I moved to Vermont and started ski racing again on the Women's Pro Tour. Did you ever have any regrets moving away from the finance side? I never looked back. <laughs> nope, it was... <laughs> my parents did. <laughs> it seems like it was a good decision. Yeah, actually, I did move back to New York City again a year later because I had a job offer to work with a large ad agency, Great Advertising. And that's where I got my production experience, my television production experience, which was invaluable. I had a very crazy lifestyle where I was commuting to ski races on weekends and using all my personal days and vacation days to get to the mountains. <laughs> and then midweek, I was working you know, these 60, 70-hour weeks producing television ads. So being that involved in the industry, did it make you want to be behind the camera and actually or being in front of the camera and actually be talking instead of just doing all the advertising and marketing? When Ben and I were kind of in a similar situation, you know, I was in engineering, he was in finance, we just threw ourselves into podcasting, we wanted our voices to be out there. Is that how you felt as well? Well, not really. Again, it was just serendipity. Um, I raced on the Women's Pro Tour for six years. And the last year that I was on the tour, I had a ski bag with all my race skis in it get misplaced and sent to Japan when I was going to a race in California. And so I, I couldn't race. And the television crew asked me to be a guest commentator at <laughs> that event. The next year, ESPN picked up a two-year agreement to cover pro ski racing, and they need a commentator. And I was the only one that had any experience. <laughs> but coincidence I was leaving the pro tour I was retiring and uh, also by coincidence the travel channel this is in 1991 the travel channel was in its very early days and it was starting a show called ski new england and they needed a host and I did the interview and got the job and then I had a full-time job hosting ski programming between ESPN on weekends and ski new england on weekdays so you say coincidence a lot in there, and I don't think coincidence happens that frequently. I think you're being pretty humble. Do you think that all of this was a result of you throwing yourself out there and saying, you know, whatever's come, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this stuff out? It, it was definitely I'm going to try this stuff out. I was quite interested in commentating and in the television side of it, television sports. I, I think that's a natural progression for any professional athlete yeah. and I just happened to have good timing on it because pro ski racing particularly women's pro ski racing was starting to have a fairly sizable winter sports television presence mm -hmm. and so that that's what really launched it but once you get the opportunity you got to learn the business and I loved it right away and felt like it was my place in the universe and 
could rely quite a bit on the production experience I'd gained to understand the whole picture. And then I, I really had some good mentors and really threw myself into it to try to learn the television business and learn how to produce and host and, and be very good at it. Because in the big picture, skiing is a very small, small part of the television world. And if you want to have a true career in it, you, you've got to be more versatile. And it's real hard when you get into it as an athlete because you're very much pigeonholed. You know, I was labeled skier. So for me to do anything that wasn't very specifically in my sport, I had to work quite hard to learn the craft, so to speak. Yeah. So here's a question you aren't expecting. Russell and I, like we said, are relatively new to the podcast. And you said you've learned a lot about the business. What do we need to learn? What do we not know yet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're lucky because you don't have to deal with audio. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, that's always been one of the, the cardinal rules of broadcast. Everybody really pays attention to the visual parts of it, but Mm -hmm. they forget that the audio is really one of the most important pieces. Mm -hmm. In terms of learning, you're already well down that path because you've got the audio pretty well nailed. (laughs) Well, thank you. And uh, we noticed you're doing TV shows, you've written books and articles, but basically the only thing you haven't done is podcasting, and it seems like Russell and I beat you to that (laughs) one. (laughs) Actually, I've only been a guest on radio shows and podcasts similar to what you're doing. Um, I've had quite a few people actually talk to me about starting podcasts, but so when we're all done, you're going to give me a lesson, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we'll trade. Yeah, we're pretty expensive, so we're going to have to get... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, anyway, so you get involved with TV, and you're also traveling a lot and taking a lot of pictures, and you start writing. Did this all just come completely naturally, or did you just see a huge business need for these kind of things? Well, some of it was business need and some of it was my need to fill in around my television work. So in the in the broadcast business, things generally run in seasons, you know, a 13-show season. And after you've worked on a show and it's run its course, there's usually some downtime before the next project comes along or goes into production. And so writing seemed to be a real natural way for me to fill in that time and still make some money and stay visible and stay connected with the sports that I love to do. And I really didn't pick up the photography piece of it till much later. I I got a contract to write a book called Best Hikes with Dogs, New Hampshire and Vermont. <laughs> I saw that one. I think I'm going to buy it. I just got two <laughs> it, dogs. <laughs> and that came about in a really funny way. I was on a backcountry ski trip in the Han Peak Wilderness in Colorado. And the guy who wrote the first Best Hikes with Dogs, which was basically on Western Washington, asked mm-hmm. me if I'd send him a copy of my first book, which was called Ski Faster. I'd never heard of him or his books, but I thought, well, what the heck? And uh, got the book and thought, well, I'm never going to bring my dog to Western Washington. And I never paid attention to it. Well, (laughs) I ended up climbing Mount Rainier about two summers later. And that's in Western Washington. We did a couple hikes, you know, when we came off the mountain. And then I thought, saw that book and thought, well, I wonder if those hikes are in that book and started reading it and was, wow, this is a good idea. Basically called the guy and said, you think they'd want to do one on... uh, you know, somewhere in New England where I live, Vermont, New Hampshire. (laughs) Well, when I got the contract for the book, it said I had to not only provide the words, but also the photographs. Mm -hmm. And I called the acquisition editor and I was like, "Uh, I'm not a professional photographer. And her response was, well, I'm not going to hire a photographer to go on 60 hikes (laughs) with you. You Better learn. (laughs) That's interesting. So did you eventually fall in love with that? I know you've been published in a lot of magazines from your 
photography and, and other things? Well, actually, so when I started working on the dog book, the photography was my favorite part. I loved it. And I've always had a propensity for visual arts. I mean, I think that's why I love the television business. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a bit of crossover, you know, in terms of lighting and composition. And, and, and uh, by, again, by coincidence, my father-in-law was a professional photographer. And he was able to loan me some camera gear. And he was a really good mentor to start with. And this is back in the film days. So I would be like a kid, you know, waiting for Christmas. Every time I'd send in a, you know, a few rolls of slides, they'd come back and I'd just tear into them and <laughs> couldn't wait to see them. And it was, it was a really exciting part of doing that book. And then when the book was finished, I had this incredible stock photo file of all these hikes, not just of dogs, but of hikes and flora and fauna and everything in the backcountry on these 60 locations around Vermont and New Hampshire. And so suddenly magazines like Backpacker were real interested in what I had in my stock library, you know, because it was, it was very, very current. And it's real tough for, particularly for magazines to find real current hiking photos. So that's what got me into photography. Yeah. And that just seems so exciting to have all these things that you've been there, you've experienced, and then you're actually making money from them. How does it feel when you're in between projects? You don't really know what's going to come next and you don't have a consistent job. Is that stressful for you? Well, luckily at this point in my life, I'm virtually not in that position much anymore. And so I'd say the more stressful part of it is how to balance it all. It's a lot of frogs to keep in the proverbial wheelbarrow. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, you've been very successful, obviously. We talked a little bit before the show about your Emmys. Tell our listeners about those. What did you win those for? Well, I've been real fortunate. I've won three Emmys so far. All three of them were for a television show that aired on PBS in New England. It's called Wildlife Journal. And my role on the show was as a field producer and as a host, as a reporter, you know, in the field. And my job was to create interest and excitement and get people outdoors. It's all about participation. And I was real fortunate. <laughs> it got me into so many really cool places, particularly in New Hampshire and in the backcountry. I got to go clam digging. I went skiing in Tuckerman's Ravine. We'd go dog sledding. We'd hunt woodcock. I, you know, you name it. If it was outdoors, we hiked lots of mountains. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I got to do it and I got to talk about it and bring it to viewers. And I, I think part of the Emmy process is you can never predict something like that. It's a peer review process. And when you win an individual Emmy, whether it's for producing something or as an on-camera host, it's based on a composite of work. And so my hope is that it just excited the people that were judging. The judges are in different parts of the country. So I don't know who judged. It could have been somebody in San Francisco or Denver or in Ohio. You never know who's judging the entry, mm -hmm. the Emmy entries. But um, my hope is it got them excited about getting outdoors too. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. Another question that I've always had. So 60 Minutes is one of my favorite television shows. Russell's getting really annoyed with me because I'm talking about 60 Minutes. But anyway, I wouldn't say that each reporter on 60 Minutes. So Sanjay Gupta isn't necessarily an expert on salmon, right? But he does a fantastic job reporting on salmon. And you are reporting, too, on 
topics that you're familiar with, but maybe not an expert on. So I, I saw a piece where you would talk to somebody about how to wax skis. What skills do you need to have to be able to do something like that? For me, the key is that there's two pieces to it. One is doing a lot of homework, doing a lot of research so that when you go on camera, you pretty much know your material as well as you possibly can. And you know, you can almost anticipate what your interviewee is going to tell you. Uh, And that way you can then structure the interview so that you cover it in an entertaining way. And that allows the person that you're interviewing for their personality to come out and for you to pull information out of them that's interesting to the viewer. You know, there's some cardinal rules, like you never want to ask someone a yes or no question because right. then they'll just say <laughs> yes or no, and that's it. <laughs> and there's pieces of it that are just sort of rules of thumb. But the key for me was always doing my homework and knowing as much about not only the subject matter, you know, say we were talking about how to release a trout so you didn't injure the trout. Like the fish? A fish, yeah. yeah. And um, so we were fly fishing. Mm-hmm. So not only did I want to know as much as I could about trout as a fish and as a species, but their habitat, the location where we were at, the person who I was interviewing, what their background was. I, I needed the big picture, in other words, not just about that singular topic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes you successful as an interviewer. So have things ever gone terribly wrong? I know this is one of the cardinal rules. It's a yes or no, but if you could elaborate a little bit more on it. (laughs) Have things ever gone terribly wrong in an interview where you did as much research as you could and it was basically live and you just didn't know what to do? Well, luckily on all of my live shows, I was okay. Those all went pretty well. But I have had some experiences that were pretty much a disaster. (laughs) One time I went fishing on the northern Connecticut River, way north, where it basically, it becomes part of the Northern Forest Canoe Trail up by the Columbia Bridge. The river's pretty skinny. It just becomes navigable. Anyway, we spent 14 hours on that river. It was basically at flood level, and there was a bunch of tannin and crap in the water. It was really murky, but it was one of those days where that was our scheduled day to go out with this one person to go fishing and we couldn't reschedule it and so there we were and 14 hours later we had not caught a fish and oh gosh that was a long day (laughs) and when you're doing a fishing segment and you don't catch a fish it's pretty brutal (laughs) yeah you have to go to the fish market go buy some like yeah we got a few well. well i did have a real funny situation like that it wasn't necessarily a problem but we were doing a segment on how to cook over a campfire. You know, so say you're out camping in the woods and you went fishing and you caught your own trout and you wanted to cook it for dinner. Well, we didn't have the time to actually go fish for trout. So the New Hampshire Fisheries gave us some fish to use for the segment because the Wildlife Journal was, the grant for it came from a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Restoration Project grant. So anyway, so they were all excited and they wanted to give us their best fish. Well, when you're cooking over a campfire, you use this little teeny frying pan. You know, it's part of your kit. Mm-hmm. You're usually the top of your pots. 
And they gave us these trout that were probably 18 inches long. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> man. A little creative. <laughs> yeah, you probably have so many stories. I do want to talk about one thing that you are doing now. It's actually how we got connected. It's through skiing and through mountains. It's where the Mountain Meister uh, podcast. Talk a little bit about some of the events you're running. It's called Your Turn. It's a women's ski clinic. Like I said in the intro, it's helped over 6,000 women so far. Yeah, the Your Turn Women's Ski Clinics are something I'm I'm really quite proud of, and, and I just love to do. I've been doing women's ski clinics for a long time, since 1991, and it's really girls' day out. There's a bunch of theories about women's ski teaching and women teaching women and creating an environment that's nurturing and hmm. and uh, is conducive for women to, to learn and to have a breakthrough in their skiing. I think that's real common knowledge, and you can go to any ski area and get that. But what separates my program from the others is the fact that I, I really pay attention to gear. I make sure that everybody is on good skis. Elon Skis is a sponsor of the program, and everybody that comes to the clinic has an opportunity to demo skis. Because if you're not on decent skis that are well-tuned, an instructor can tell you what to do until they're blue in the face, and you can't perform it. It doesn't matter what your ability level. So that's one key ingredient that you don't normally find at a at your average you know ski school. The other thing that I do is I, I really concentrate on a progression of skills that are not necessarily the normal ski school progression. And I try to answer the questions that most women have on the hill, which aren't necessarily specific to women. Most gals want to know what do I do with my hands? You know, how do I make a good pole plant? Most women have trouble sitting back because they carry their center of gravity much lower in their hips than guys do. And I find that if I can work on those two key things, rather than just saying, you got to get forward, you know, I tell them how to get forward, how to get their center of gravity forward, then most women in a day have a breakthrough in their skiing, and not to mention the fact that they have a great time on the hill. Mm. <laughs> and it's, you know, laugh a lot, and, you know, we tell a lot of jokes, and we have a great time, and, and surprisingly, the weather is not even an object. It can be pouring rain, blowing sideways you know of course we want to have a nice day but everybody's out there having a great time wow uh, from the business perspective i think that offering ski lessons or any lessons for that matter for the 50 plus demographic and i know you're targeting other uh demos but the 50 plus crowd i think is a recipe for success and let me tell you why so <laughs> i look at my parents for example you know their kids are out of college financially stable and they're always looking for opportunities to exercise and they still have that drive to improve. Everybody still wants to get better at something. And, you know, taking a ski lesson or a tennis lesson, the best part of it for you is that they forget everything after a few weeks and then they are repeat customers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of my hope that they don't forget everything. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. one yeah. thing, I'm really happy. <laughs> Actually, I tell people that in my clinics. I, I, I tell them that... Basically, they're going to walk away with their brains spinning with all this information. Right. From it. If they can just concentrate on one or two things, the rest of the information, the rest of the technique will come. And that's usually the case. And, and it's interesting what you say about the age thing. I would say that my women's ski clinics and my master's race clinics both skew a little bit on the older side. Not so much 50 plus, but certainly 40 plus. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is exactly what you mentioned, I think. People are very athletic. They really want to perform well. Um, they're real interested in skiing, and, and they've got the 
the means now and the and a little more time to be able to pursue what you know what they have a passion for they also learn in different ways as well i think i think everybody no matter their age learns by copying you know following someone down the hill but as you get older you can also learn from an intellectual point of view mm-hmm. and through analogies and other parts of your life and i i use that um, use those techniques as well Absolutely, that's a good point. Yeah, these these events seem really fun too. It's too bad the the boys aren't allowed, but <laughs> maybe, maybe somewhere down the line when you decide that you want to work on a little higher center of gravity. But you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned. But if any of our women listeners are on and they're interested in any of the events, Lisa is all over the country. I saw events from Montana to New York, and so definitely check out her website. We'll have that right on our website as well. The link to that. Since we have you on the show, Lisa, we really like to get your advice on uh, one piece of outdoorsy gear for our listeners. Well, I have to talk about skiing and skis because that's where my heart is. And I've also spent a lot of time working with various manufacturers on ski design, especially for women. And the one question I always get is, all right, I want to have one ski that can do it all. My one quiver ski. I I really don't want to have five different pairs of skis that are highly specialized. One for powder, one for ice, one for front side, one for backside, that kind of stuff. And uh, my go-to ski is the Elan Intera. It's a women's ski. It's 88 millimeters under the waist, which I find is a pretty versatile waist width. I can ski it really well in powder. I can ski it perfectly well on the hard pack that I find in some of the northeastern ski areas if I just hit it a certain way. I have to be real careful because none of the eastern ski areas like me to say the I word. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that ski I love. It also has a wonderful side cut. It's got a 14-meter side cut. So I can make really snappy quick turns and I can make big turns and that ski's got a bit of metal in it, so I can ski it fast and hard. Or if I want to back off and be a little lazy, I can do that too. So that's my recommendation. If you're looking for that one quiver ski and you're a gal, go for that Elan and Terra. That's my ski. That's the, the one I reach for whenever I'm traveling and I can only bring one pair. Yeah, great recommendation. And my experience with women who are looking for a good combination of skis, it doesn't have to be... 120 underfoot or the super fat ski because generally women are a little bit lighter and they just don't need that much and and they can't really control it as easily. So I usually ski myself on like a 90 to 95, even in powder days. So I wouldn't be discouraged. Just I I think one of our recommendations, we did have a 138 (laughs) underfoot. And so, I mean, if you got extreme powder, then then those are fun too. But a great recommendation. Thanks. Yeah, and to wrap this whole thing up, Lisa, we'd like to talk about one problem that the ski industry is facing in the future. And something that I've noticed is that, you know, we talk to a lot of professional skiers, and the professional term is very loose and nebulous. You've got a lot of people pursuing skiing full time, but not necessarily making the means to support themselves down the road. Do you think that that's a problem? Well, I I don't know that it's a problem because certainly for the one year or five years that most professional skiers make a living at it, it's a wonderful period of your life. Mm -hmm. The key is how do you make it happen for a much longer period? I think earning a living is a slippery slope because depending on what your goals are in your life, that can often determine what you need to make when you talk about earning a living. 
with me, I find that there's pieces to it that are really important off the snow that a lot of professional skiers miss. You have to not only be on the snow and be good at what you do skill-wise when you're skiing, you have to be good at the rest of it, at the business piece of it. And that's everything from paying your bills, marketing yourself, figuring out your budget, putting together your programs. There's there's so many elements to it. I spend a lot of time in my office. I'm a professional skier, and what I love is out on the hill, but I can't ignore what I do indoors as well. So when you talk about how to be a professional skier and make it last much longer than that period where other people are, in fact, supporting you, you have to look at yourself as your own brand and your own business and and manage yourself as such. The other piece that I find that's really important is you have to act professionally on the hill. You know, a lot of there's a lot of cool factor in skiing and snowboarding and snow sports in general, especially for, you know, kids. I say kids, young adults, you know, people who are, you know, in their teens really and in their early 20s. I'm 52 years old. I'm about to turn 53. I question myself all the time, why am I still making a living as a professional skier? And I think those are really the keys is that I I act professionally. It is my business and I do have a lot of fun and it's my passion and I, I hone my skills. I'm constantly striving to ski better. But at the same time, I pay attention to the business side of it. And, and I think you got to put both parts together. Great answer and great advice. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, we'll have all the resources that we talked about today on our website, mtnmeister.com, on Lisa's Meister profile page. Thanks, Lisa. Meister fans, hope you enjoyed that episode with Lisa Ballard. I have some pretty terrible news. Russell is leaving me. Just kidding. But he is going away for three-ish weeks. But don't worry, we've prepared for it. That's the beauty of our podcast is that we can almost operate it from anywhere. Russell and I are going to be hundreds of miles away from each other. And we're still delivering it five days a week. I, during that time, will be visiting my home. Yeah, Ben's going to be hanging out on the alpaca farm for a while. They're llamas. Oh, yeah, I thought you had alpacas. No, no llamas. Whatever. He'll be at a farm. I will be traveling to the Great Lakes and doing a 21-day camping trip with my fiance and my two dogs. It's going to be an adventure. We're going to try to hit maybe 15 different beaches and islands, and it's just going to be awesome. So make sure you follow us on Instagram so you can see all the updates from my adventure and then also see Ben's llamas. And if you know the difference between an alpaca and a llama, definitely let us know. I already know. <laughs> Next episode of Mountain Meister, we have Jay Henry. He's a professional endurance mountain biker. And during one race, one of the biggest ones of the season, his tire blew out 100 yards from the finish. Do you think he won? Check it out tomorrow. <laughs>